Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Thank you so much for being patient and waiting an extra day for this next and last episode on Janine Jones. I promise this time. I know it's been a lot, but we had lots of kid activities going on yesterday, and my husband and I always divide and conquer, but this time there was still too much going on for me to get a chance to record. So thanks for being patient, and we're going to go ahead and get started. But I do want to say, of all the episodes that I've done, and this is number 31, I think this one has been the most infuriating to me because everything has been right there in front of everyone's faces. And there are people who have seen it, wanted her to face justice, and couldn't get anyone to back them up. And then the other people were just too lazy, basically, to follow through and do the right thing. Or were so worried about their own selves and a possible lawsuit that they didn't want to do it. I mean, come on. Babies are dying. Get it together. How selfish can you be? Anyway, rant over. Let's get started. It didn't take long for Ron Sutton, the Kerr County District Attorney, to realize just how complex this case was going to be. Eight different children had experienced a medical emergency under the care of pediatrician Kathy Holland and her nurse, Janine Jones. Ron Sutton wasn't even sure where he should start to try and unravel the story. He decided to start with the state police crime lab. Its chemist had analyzed the bottle of succinylcholine with the needle marks in the top. The bottle was almost full, but it was only one-sixth the normal concentration. Someone had put saline solution in the bottle to make it appear that it was full. If Janine Jones was using succinylcholine to murder children, it was going to be very hard for him to prove. But the more he learned about succinylcholine, Ron Sutton knew that he had to make sure he knew if it was an accident or if it was murder. A dose of succinylcholine would be a torturous way to die. When too much such, la la la, sorry you guys, when too much succinylcholine is given, the person is completely paralyzed but still conscious, unable to breathe, but totally alert. So basically, while you are suffocating to death, you're fully aware of everything that is going on and unable to communicate at all that you need help. When the drug first takes effect, it could be confused for a seizure. The person's hands often twitch and their eyelids flutter. So that, those things were where Dr. Holland and other doctors mis mistook these symptoms as seizure symptoms and not a succinylcholine overdose. When the drug completely takes effect, the person is unable to cough or even blink. Anyone that does not receive help breathing under succinylcholine will turn blue from lack of oxygen and a short time later, the person's heart stops. So, kind of like I said earlier, can you imagine being fully aware of what is going on and you can do nothing about it? It sounds to me like something that you would see in a horror movie where the crazy scientist is operating on people and the people are awake but unable to do anything. It would be terrifying. And Janine Jones gave 
all of those little babies succinylcholine to end their lives. So it wasn't a peaceful death. It was a scary, horrible death. When everything started falling apart, Kathy Holland's lawyers advised her to quit talking to the authorities until they would make her a deal. So she quickly stopped cooperating at all with the DA's office. Of course, this behavior also made her look very suspicious. So it was kind of a catch-22. But she was done with Janine Jones. Janine Jones, on the other hand, as usual, thrived on all the drama. She loved being right in the middle of it. And as soon as she moved to San Angelo, away from Kerrville, she called Texas Ranger Joe Davis and told him her new address and telephone number. She cheerfully told him that she'd be happy to answer any questions at any time. She really didn't believe that anything was going to happen to her. She truly thought that she'd lie and get out of things again. I mean, besides, she'd walked away free and clear from Bear County Hospital. Why would this be any different? When Ron Sutton received the end results of Chelsea McClellan's autopsy, it threw another wrench in his case. Dr. Holland had ordered the autopsy, and because there was no suspicion of foul play, the county medical examiner did not conduct it. Instead, a private pathologist group in San Antonio called Severance and Associates had done Chelsea's autopsy. When the autopsy was complete, nothing unusual was found. There seemed to be nothing to explain why the little girl died. They decided to send Chelsea's brain to a neuropathologist, an expert in studying tissue. They sent Chelsea's brain to Dr. Kathleen Kagan Hallett. She was the only civilian subspecialist in town who did this. She examined Chelsea's brain and found signs of gliosis, or scarring, on her brainstem. Kagan Hallett said the findings were very subtle, but her conclusion was that Chelsea died from an atypical form of SIDS, or sudden infant death syndrome. That meant he couldn't charge someone with murder when the autopsy said it was death due to natural causes. So again, Ron Sutton hit a wall. Even though there were many coincidences in all of the deaths and they all linked to Janine Jones, Ron Sutton really needed someone who saw her give the shots to the children. He needed a witness. Or if he couldn't find a witness, he needed to be able to find a lab test that could confirm that succinylcholine was in Chelsea's system. But at that time, it seemed almost impossible. As far as Sutton knew, succinylcholine broke down in the body very quickly and was impossible to trace. There wasn't a way to test for it. In fact, succinylcholine was considered the perfect murder weapon because succinylcholine was untraceable. Renowned defense attorney F. Lee Bailey had called it the ideal murder weapon. Meanwhile, the officials at Bear County Hospital were getting a little nervous. They thought that they had washed their hands of Janine Jones. After all, she'd gotten this chance to walk free. Most people would lie low. But, as usual, she was up to her same tricks in Kerrville that she'd been up to in San Antonio. They expected her just to go away, but she didn't. We all know Janine thinks she's above the law. She thinks she can do whatever she wants. So, I don't know why they thought she'd just quietly slink off into a corner. So now the officials were worried that her past offenses at the hospital were going to come back and bite them. After all, they didn't do anything about it. Not long after she moved to San Angelo, Janine called her mother and told her there might be a little trouble. Knowing her daughter, Gladys was not surprised. After all, Gladys had bailed her out of one problem after another throughout her entire life. 
Janine had found work at the state school for intellectually disadvantaged adults. She enrolled her children at the local public school. Kathy Ferguson, the girl that had lived with them in Kerrville, continued to live with them and watch Janine's children. She had found out that she was pregnant while they were in Kerrville, and she was due in a few months. Under the instruction of Kerr County DA Ron Sutton, law enforcement officers had started keeping tabs on Janine Jones and her whole group. Ron Sutton was not giving up on proving that Chelsea McClellan's death was caused by SIDS. He knew in his gut that Janine Jones was guilty, and he wanted to make sure that she was held accountable for her crimes. On December 15th, Ron Sutton and Texas Ranger Joe Davis drove to San Antonio to meet with Dr. Kagan Hallett, the neuropathologist who had ruled that Chelsea's death was caused by SIDS. Ron Sutton told her that a nurse was under investigation in Chelsea's death and that it was believed that she gave the little girl an injection of succinylcholine. He asked Dr. Kagan Hallett if that would change her mind about SIDS causing Chelsea's death. She said yes, it would. The brainstem scarring might have damaged the little girl's normal breathing regulatory mechanism. If her breathing was interrupted by a shot of succinylcholine, she might have trouble regaining respiration. Dr. Kagan Hallett said that she would research the problem and write an addendum to her findings. Dr. Kagan Hallett remembered Janine Jones herself. Since Kagan Hallett performed most of the children's autopsies that died at Bear County Hospital, Janine had come to several of them. And Dr. Kagan Hallett remembered that Janine had asked many interesting questions at all of the autopsies. Dr. Kagan Hallett was curious now, so she made a few inquiries of her own about the ICU nurse. One of the pediatric residents told Kagan Hallett that Janine Jones had a reputation for being strange and that everyone was relieved when she quit. A month later, while Dr. Kagan Hallett was at the monthly San Antonio Society of Pathologists meeting, she told Dr. Corey May that DA Ron Sutton in Kerrville was looking into the death of a toddler and thought it was linked to succinylcholine. She also told Dr. May that there had been many suspicious baby deaths at Bear County Hospital and they were linked to the same nurse that Ron Sutton was looking at. Dr. May worked for Dr. Vincent DeMeo, the Bear County Chief Coroner, who was a famous pathologist in his own right. He was nationally known for his expertise on gunshot wounds. She told him what Dr. Kagan Hallett had confided in her about the deaths of all of the babies at Bear County Hospital. Dr. DeMeo himself had been complaining that the doctors at Bear County Hospital had been ignoring state laws and failing to report all questionable deaths to the coroner's office. This just added fuel to his fire. Dr. DeMeo wrote a memo for his own files detailing what Dr. May had told him and recorded what he knew about the suspicions of Janine Jones. After he wrote down his suspicions, he got in his car and drove to the Bear County Courthouse and reported everything he knew to the district attorney's office. Sam D. Millsap Jr. was the current district attorney in Bear County. When he heard of the suspicious deaths at Bear County Hospital, he became determined to hold the people at Bear County Hospital and Janine Jones accountable for their wrongdoing. When Dr. DeMeo arrived at District Attorney Sam Millsap's office on January 12, 1983, he asked if he could speak with the DA behind closed doors. After he laid everything out for him, Millsap decided he needed to get his hands on the reports from the hospital. He also knew that if he let the hospital know what he was up to, they might destroy those records before he ever got his hands on them. He ordered everyone working on the case to keep everything a secret. They were forbidden to even discuss it with other colleagues at the office. It was possible that someone had been killing babies, and the hospital covered it all up. 
It didn't take long for the press to get wind of what was going on, and they were broadcasting nightly. Each time the information became more sensational. The whole community was up in arms. People were wondering who the leak was in the DA's office. It turns out that it was Millsap himself. He wanted the community to know what was happening, and there was no better way to spread the word than Eyewitness News star investigative reporter Ted Dracos. Sam Millsap wanted the hospital on blast, and that was exactly what he got. Millsap knew that the hospital would close ranks and he would get nothing out of them. By putting them in the spotlight, it would be harder for them to hide their ugly secret. The press went wild, and people started coming out of the woodwork to tell all about their experiences with their children at Bear County Hospital. Doctors, nurses, and residents also called. All of them had known Janine Jones. The reports were not flattering. It was exactly the response the DA had hoped for. The media focused heavily on Janine Jones, even though she hadn't been charged with anything yet. Because of all the publicity, Janine was forced to quit her job at the state school and went to work at a small nursing home in San Angelo. On February 2nd, Chelsea McClellan's parents filed a wrongful death suit against Janine Jones and Dr. Kathy Holland. When she was served the papers, Janine Jones called the McClellan's attorney's office and screamed at them. She said it was an outrage. The lawsuit made the document a public record and gave the newspapers an excuse to name Janine Jones as a central figure in the deaths of the, of the children in San Antonio and in Kerrville. Sam Millsap and Ron Sutton had signed a mutual assistance pact to work together on their separate investigations, since they were proceeding in different counties. This way, they would be able to work together, share their information, and hopefully, combined, they could get could get a conviction on Janine Jones. On February 24th, they summoned Janine Jones to appear for questioning before a grand jury in Bear County. Janine's attorney advised her to take the fifth and not say a word, but instead, Janine got up on the stand and told everyone that it wasn't nurses making mistakes, it was doctors, and they were lying to stay out of trouble. Janine said that she herself had done nothing wrong. She was following the orders of the doctors, including Dr. Holland. She said that she had been targeted because of her personality and because she wasn't scared to call the doctors out on what they were doing wrong, and they decided to use her as a scapegoat. She said that she would continue to speak so that she could clear her name. The people at Bear County Hospital acted like they had no idea what anyone was talking about. They claimed ignorance. They said they had found no evidence of any wrongdoing whatsoever when they were investigating. Behind closed doors, the hospital was sweating, though. On March 16th, an addendum to the committee's original report on the pediatric ICU was sent out. Of the 35 children who had died during 1981 in the ICU, 25 had died during the 3 to 11 shift, Janine Jones's shift. I don't know about you, but that's pretty sketchy. Millsap and Sutton knew that this investigation was going to take months. Plus, they were still lacking the one thing that they really needed. Concrete proof that Janine Jones was murdering babies on purpose. There was tons of circumstantial evidence, but they wanted to make sure that they were able to put her away for good. If they didn't have solid evidence, that could result in a hung jury and Janine could walk. Both DAs were determined to get a conviction. The DA's luck was about to turn. Ron Sutton learned of a new test that might be able to prove that Chelsea McClellan died from an overdose of succinylcholine. A doctor from Sweden named Bo Holmstedt claimed that he had developed a test that could detect minute amounts of succinylcholine 
in embalmed human tissue. Ron Sutton and Texas Ranger Joe Davis flew to Philadelphia to meet with Dr. Frederick Readers, an associate of Dr. Homestead. Readers and Homestead agreed to run the test, but the test would be expensive. It would cost $10,000. They would also need samples of Chelsea McClellan's tissue from where she had been injected. That meant they would have to exhume the little girl's body. The McClellans agreed to having Chelsea's body exhumed, but they didn't want to know when it was going to happen. So on May 7th, Vincent DeMeo, the Bear County coroner, took the samples that they would need from Chelsea. Dr. DeMeo had performed around 4,000 autopsies by this time in his career, but none had left him shaken like this. This wasn't the normal clientele who'd been in trouble with the law all their lives that he was used to seeing. It was an innocent toddler who had been murdered for no reason at all, except that a nurse who was supposed to help her decided to kill her instead. He took samples from Chelsea's kidneys, her liver, her gallbladder, and her bladder. He then took samples from both thighs where he had to cut into the muscle on the little girl's legs where Janine Jones had injected her. He marked the samples and placed them in a styrofoam cooler full of dry ice and handed them over to Dr. Reeder. Dr. Reeder then got on an airplane and flew with the cooler to Stockholm. On my, finally, on May 18th, the call from Stockholm finally came. Dr. Homestead and readers confirmed the presence of succinyl choline in the body of Chelsea McClellan. Ron Sutton didn't waste any time. Sutton called Kathy Holland's lawyers and said he did not believe that Dr. Holland was criminally responsible for what had happened. The DA gave his word that he would not prosecute Dr. Holland if she agreed to testify against Janine Jones and help put her behind bars. Dr. Holland agreed. The grand jury issued eight criminal indictments against Janine Jones. She was charged with murder in the death of Chelsea McClellan, and she was charged with injury to a child in the non-fatal episodes of Brandy Benitez, Chris Parker, Jimmy Pearson, Misty Reichenau, Jacob Evans, and Rolinda Ruff. All eight indicted alleged that the nurse had intentionally and knowingly injured the children by injecting them with succinylcholine or some other drug. Each charge carried a maximum sentence of 99 years. Janine was arrested and pled not guilty to all of the charges. She was taken to Kerrville and locked in the Kerr County Jail. Her bond was set at $225,000. One last time, Gladys Jones came to her daughter's rescue. She posted the bond and Janine was able to go free. Gladys didn't want to believe that her daughter was a killer, but Gladys also knew she couldn't trust her daughter. During this time, Janine's original attorney asked to be allowed to step down. He was tired of dealing with Janine, and since her trial was going to be held in Georgetown, he thought it would make more sense if her lawyer was in Georgetown, too. He was granted his request, and Janine was appointed two new attorneys. After their first meeting, one of Janine Jones's new attorneys, Joe Grady-Tuck, was convinced his client was insane. He had been a criminal defense attorney for quite some time, and most of the time, his clients knew they were guilty. They were just trying to make the best of it. This was one of the only times that someone had been almost delusional to think that the more they talked, the more people would believe they were guilty. And to make it worse, Joe Grady Tuck believed his client was guilty. He commissioned Dr. Franklin Redmond, a prominent psychiatrist in San Antonio, to examine Janine. Dr. Redmond interviewed Janine in a three-hour session. 
After he was done, he sent a written summary of his conclusions to the attorney. He said that Janine Jones was not insane and perfectly competent. That sunk the defense's strategy. Janine moved in with her mother and brought her two children and her new love interest, Garen Turk, with her. Her mother was in very poor health and was not happy with this arrangement. She also disapproved of Janine dating a 19-year-old boy. After less than a week, Janine and Garen left and went to Garen's grandmother's house and left the children behind with Gladys yet again. Gladys was disgusted with her daughter and tired of her poor life choices. She was also tired of the poor treatment she and her grandchildren received from Janine. She washed her hands of her daughter. Gladys told the DA that she would no longer be providing any financial help to her daughter. She also went and had her will changed. Janine would receive nothing when she died. Joe Grady Tuck also became sick of dealing with his new client. She didn't listen to anything that he said and blatantly ignored his directions. She even let 2020 come and interview her. When he told her to lie low, the last thing he wanted her to do was let 2020 come give an interview. So he also petitioned the judge to be replaced. His request was granted, and Tuck felt like he was a free man. Janine was all over the place, and she was out of control. She spoke to the press. She made threats against Ron Sutton. She staged break-ins at her house and was in and out of the emergency room claiming all kinds of illnesses. On October 17th, her bail bondsman, Leonard Dale Moreau, came to the sheriff's office and said that he wanted to revoke Janine's bond. He did not believe that he could guarantee her appearance in court. The Texas Rangers arrested Janine that afternoon and took her back to the Kerr County Jail. Janine would now have to stay in prison until her trial in January. Garen Turk also left Janine. He was tired of dealing with her also. So, Janine was officially on her own. Janine was just as much of a problem in jail as she was out of jail. On several occasions, she called Deputy Sheriff Jeff Stinnett back to her cell. There she stood, wearing nothing but an unbuttoned housecoat with nothing else on underneath. The deputy sheriff was not impressed and did not take her up on any of her offers. Others, however, were more receptive to her charms. Ronnie Rudd, a convicted auto thief, was a trustee who delivered meals to the female prisoners. It was discovered that he and Jones were having a romantic relationship because he was interested in her goods. So, he was sent to state prison to finish out his sentence. Janine told anyone who would listen that she was treated horribly at the jail. And when she didn't get what she wanted, she threw temper tantrums just like a toddler. Kicking, screaming, throwing herself on the floor, the whole nine yards. Janine Jones' trial began on January 9, 1984. That morning, Ron Sutton woke up early. He was nervous. He knew what a big deal this trial was going to be. It had taken over his whole life and he knew that he had to get a conviction. He had gotten a divorce in the middle of the 18 months that it took for them to do all of this planning and to get this trial going. His wife left him because he was so consumed by it. I mean, Janine Jones sucks the life out of everything. Before he left for the courthouse, Ron Sutton walked into the bathroom in his motel room and threw up, and then he left. The courtroom was packed. Judge Carter had not allowed the press inside. There had already been a media circus leading up to the trial, and he was not allowing that in this courtroom. Sutton opened his case dramatically for the jury. He knew that there was going to be a lot of complicated scientific evidence that he needed to present. He wanted to hook them right away. 
Instead of laying out all the details, he kept it quick and leaving them wanting to hear the story. This is what he said. I want you to see this story, this tragic story of the life and death of Chelsea McClellan unfold before your own eyes and for your own ears. Now you're going to be wondering, why? Why, why, why would something like this happen? Why? 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 He let the jury know that he didn't have to prove a motive. Then he said, but I think we are going to be able to do so as these chapters of the sequence of events in the months of August and September 1982 unfold before you. And as the testimony begins to draw to a close, not only do I feel that you will absolutely be convinced that the state has proven these elements, but it will become inescapably clear as to the reason why without me even having to tell you. Ron Sutton called out all the stops. He wanted the jury to be enraged and heartbroken by what had happened to little Chelsea McClellan. His first witness was Sharon Keith, the head nurse in the ER. She said she had treated the toddler just 24 days earlier for a similar emergency that occurred also at Dr. Holland's office. Next up was the ambulance driver, Steve Brown, who was driving on the fateful day Chelsea died. He also called Trixie Anderson, another nurse who was there for Chelsea's first time at the ER, and then she also saw her in the morgue on the day that she died. As Trixie described the precious little girl, Ron Sutton held up a studio portrait of Chelsea in an eggshell blue bonnet and matching dress. He then passed it to the jury so that they could look at it. Each juror had children or grandchildren of their own, and a lot of them cried. Next, he told the jury all about how they had to exhume the baby's body and take parts of her and send them off to Sweden for testing. Janine's attorney got up to try and discredit the doctor from Sweden by calling in the private pathologist who did the original autopsy. He said yes, that was the original findings, but after learning of the possibility of the succinylcholine being injected into the little girl, that could have also caused the scarring. So, the defense struck out again. Next up was Dr. DeMeo, who said SIDS was a waste paper basket diagnosis, misused to explain deaths from many different causes. He said virtually all true SIDS deaths came from babies less than six months old. Chelsea McClellan was 15 months old. During the second week of the trial, Sutton called Petty McClellan to the stand. The mother looked weary and heartbroken. She gave a wrenching testimony about losing her baby girl. She told about how she screamed for Janine to stop, and she just said Chelsea was mad and promptly gave her another shot in the other leg. She sobbed as she told the story. When the defense tried to dispute Petty McClellan's story, she gave no ground. She insisted her little girl had been fine until Janine Jones gave her those shots. Next, I heard the testimony from Dr. Bo Holmstedt, the doctor from Sweden who had done all the testing on Chelsea's tissue to look for succinylcholine. He walked everyone through the testing, explaining it in layman's terms so there would be no confusion about the process. He then confirmed for the jury that Chelsea had succinylcholine in her system. The defense was getting slammed. The crowds were getting bigger each day at the courthouse. Everyone wanted inside to watch the proceedings, but Judge Carter kept a tight grip on who came into the trial. The press was forbidden. Ron Sutton, on the other hand, had the press's favor because every afternoon after the trial had stopped for the day, he gave a prompt, a, an impromptu press conference against the judge's orders. One thing that was noted by everyone in the courtroom Janine Jones did not have one family member or friend come to support her at all throughout the trial. She had alienated everyone. So in the court, a spot was saved for 
the defendants support people. It was always empty. No one ever came. They also noted that Janine didn't seem to care what was going on throughout the trial. She acted as if it didn't really pertain to her at all. She ate candy. She drew on notepads. One day she brought the novel Pet Cemetery by Stephen King in and wanted to read it during the court proceedings. Her lawyers told her to put it away. These new lawyers were also sick of her. On Thursday, January 26th, Dr. Callie Ho Kathy Holland got up to testify. Janine was convinced that Kathy was going to back her up, but that wasn't what happened at all. Dr. Holland told everything she knew. She testified for two days. After she was done, Janine broke down and cried. It was the first time she acted like she might actually get convicted and that she might care about anything that was going on around her. Janine also felt betrayed. She thought Kathy was her friend. How could she do this to her? Janine never once thought about the fact that because of everything she had done, Kathy had lost her practice, she had lost her marriage, and she was totally bankrupt. The defense tried to break Dr. Holland down. They asked her why didn't she notice these things before? Why hadn't she stopped Janine? Holland replied that in the moment, things seemed like they made sense. It wasn't until you stepped back and looked at the big picture that everything fell into place. Kathy Holland broke down during her testimony. She was tired and she felt defeated. And Janine Jones was the cause of most all of her misery. She admitted that she regretted ever hiring her. Day after day, wave after wave of damaging evidence hit the jury. Testimony from 44 different people for the prosecution spoke and told horrible tales of the suffering that so many children endured in San Antonio and in Kerrville, all at the hands of Janine Jones. Five different mothers told awful stories of how their children almost died while under the care of Janine Jones. The trial went on for 21 days. Finally, the jurors filed out at 1.50 p.m. Everyone assumed they would need several days to make a decision. After all, they'd been listening to testimony for 21 days. The jury called at 5.15 p.m. that evening and said they had reached a verdict. The jurors came in and took their seats in the jury box at 6.10 p.m. The judge informed everyone that their decision was unanimous. It had only taken them four hours and 20 minutes to make their decision. Every single one of the jurors was somber. Two were crying. Janine Jones rose to her feet and Judge Carter read, The State of Texas versus Janine Jones in the 277th District Court of Williamson County, Texas. We, the jury, find the defendant, Janine Jones, guilty of murder, signed Edwin D. Edwards, foreman. Janine covered her face with a handkerchief and fell down into her chair. She began to sob. It was really one of the only times she showed any emotion at all. When the jurors were asked individually if this was their verdict, they all replied yes. As Janine left the courtroom, people screamed, baby killer, and you deserved it at Janine Jones. There was no mercy for a woman who targeted babies. Janine Jones was sentenced to 99 years in prison. As the jurors left the room, Petty and Reed McClellan hugged each juror individually and told them thank you. Janine Jones appealed her conviction on two separate occasions, but neither were successful. But if you've listened to the Coral Watts episodes, you know that at that time, Texas was letting all criminals, even violent ones, earn credit for good behavior. You see, the prisons were overcrowded, and they were trying to figure out ways to help with this crowding. That meant that Janine Jones could be eligible for parole when she received credit for 20 years. If she earned credit for good time, 
she could be eligible for parole as early as March of 1990. That would only be six years in jail. No one wanted Janine Jones back out on the street. Her parole was denied every year that she was eligible all the way through 2014. But the mandatory release law would let Jones out of prison in March 2018 after she'd only served 34 years of her 99-year sentence. She'd been a reasonably good prisoner, but the families of the children she had harmed were not about to let her get out. They organized a group and victims' rights advocate Andy Cahan helped them. In October 2013, Bear County DA Susan Reed assigned a deputy to explore the idea of reopening one of the cold cases against Janine Jones. But just as before, they knew it would be hard to find proof to convict her of the other murders. The new team worked just as hard to keep Janine Jones behind bars as the original team did to get her there. During that time, Petty McClellan passed away. She led the parents' group until she passed until she passed away. Her daughter Kylie, who she and Reed adopted after Chelsea died, stepped in to take her place. Now, this stretched on for years. Susan Reed ended up being replaced. A new district attorney came in. New lawyers were going, but no one ever let it drop. It was that important to everyone. No one wanted to see Janine let out. Everyone believed that if she was ever free again, she would kill more children. Finally, on January 6th, Janine's attorney called to make a deal. She did not want another trial. She was ready to settle. Now, the DA's office believes that Janine saw all the evidence that was stacked up against her and knew that she wasn't going to win. But Janine would not admit that that was the reason. The one thing she didn't want was to be labeled a serial killer, even though she had killed multiple, multiple babies. That was what was important to her. Not that she killed people, but she didn't want anyone to call her a serial killer. Everything fell into place pretty quickly after that. Janine would plead, plead guilty to murdering Joshua Sawyer. The other charges would be dismissed, but the victim's families would all be able to give victim impact statements. Janine would receive a life sentence, and even after she served 20 years, she would be 87 years old. Everyone was pretty sure that she would die in prison. In January 16, 2020, Janine Jones shuffled into the courtroom. She pled guilty in a raspy voice. Then the judge addressed her, and so did the parents of the victims. Some of the parents of the children had passed away, so family members read the statements instead. I'm going to read to you what Judge Castro said to Janine Jones, and then I'm going to read to you what Joshua Sawyer's mother said. This is what Judge Castro said to her before she left the courtroom. The acceptance of a life sentence, Judge Castro declared, doesn't come close to what you did to these families and the tragedy that you caused. You took God's most precious gift, babies, defenseless, innocent, I truly believe that your ultimate judgment is in the next life. Then Connie Weeks, Joshua Sawyer's mother, got up and was able to tell her part. Now, she wasn't the only mother who spoke, but this is what she said. I'm glad today that you will never see daylight as a free woman and your life will end in captivity for killing my son. I will leave you with this. I hope for you to live a long and miserable life behind bars. Goodbye. 
none of the other parents had anything remotely positive to say to Janine Jones. The whole time she sat there and just stared. She never acted emotional. She never said a word. It only took 13 minutes. And then when it was over, Janine Jones shuffled out a side door and the families could finally relax knowing that she was never getting out of prison again. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or want to know more about Janine Jones, you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod or on Facebook at Texas True Crime. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, read a, leave a five-star review, and tell a friend about the podcast. Guys, I've been so excited and just so thankful for everyone who's been listening. We had over 21,000 downloads of the podcast this past week. It's amazing. And I appreciate each and every one of you who have taken the time to listen, who have told a friend, who've put it out there on social media, whatever you've done. I appreciate each and every one of you. I enjoy getting to do the podcast and I enjoy sharing everything with you. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.